This is an RNZ podcast. This is Media Watch. I'm Colin Peacock. This week, Media Watch looks at new research on how Kiwi kids use the media these days. And it's bad news for local outlets. The media they choose to use aren't New Zealand made. But Netflix, YouTube and TikTok are engaging their eyeballs big time. So if Kiwi kids are screening out local media, what does the future hold for them? Also, where has all the clickbait gone? As stuff marks 20 years of online news. But first, how a startling breach of privacy from an MP and a big name pundit hit the headlines this week in a big way. Time for I've Been Thinking. Um, who would like to start? Michelle Bob, would you like to start? Of course. So I've been thinking about the pandemic, as everyone has, and opening the borders. And We're talking I, about this after four, by the way. Yes, I know mm-hmm. you are. But I think it applies to any crisis. And actually, it applies to climate change as well. That was the former National Party president and current lobbyist and PR professional Michelle Bogue on RNZ National last Tuesday afternoon, making a hard-to-grasp point about climate change and COVID-19 on the bit of the panel where the guests are asked what they've been thinking. About an hour after the panel wound up on Tuesday, people all over the country were asking what was she thinking after Michelle Bogue owned up to giving the names of active COVID-19 cases to MP Hamish Walker, who passed them on to the media to put pressure on the government. That led to an inquiry to be launched next week, which prompted the Clutha Southland MP to come clean about his role, which in turn prompted Michelle Bogue to do likewise. And by the time that news broke, soon after the panel wound up on RNZ National, Michelle Bogue's fellow panellist that day, Shane Tapo, had already moved on to another drive-time radio panel, The Huddle on News Talk ZB. You know, you don't put your party in in uh, an embarrassing situation when you're actually trying to embarrass the government. Oh, dear God, so it just got a whole lot worse. Up. Shane, we have just yeah. had a press statement come through from Michelle mm-hmm. Bogue. Michelle Bogue yeah. is just admitting oh, that... It will definitely get worse. Yeah, as acting on. CEO of the Auckland Rescue Helicopter Trust, she leaked it to Hamish Walker. No wonder, no wonder Michelle was busy... Busy typing when I was on a radio show earlier with her. She was, she, she, yeah, she looked, she looked a little bit flustered. Well, the Huddle's pundits were unanimous that Walker must go, and the next day he announced that he would. As spin-off editor Toby Manhire pointed out on Twitter, his announcement came 73 days out from the election, beating the previous first-term Clutha Southland MP Todd Barkley, who quit under a cloud of scandal 94 days out from the last election. And that prompted callers to News Talk ZB on Tuesday night to wonder just what it is that's going on in that party and that electorate. And this this young chap will go the, the same way as the last uh, young chap that held that seat, Todd Barkley. Both of them, uh, he needs to go and he needs yeah. to go now. Within an hour of the news breaking last Tuesday, a backgrounder headlined Just Who Is Hamish Walker was up on the Herald's website, reminding people that he was the guy who sent out a press statement earlier in the week claiming up to 11,000 people from India, Pakistan and Korea could be heading to Dunedin, Invercargill and Queenstown for their quarantine. The Herald also pointed out that Hamish Walker had paid tribute to Michelle Bogue in his maiden speech in Parliament three years ago, in which he went on to say... I have learned that many people in the Clutha Southland area are not afraid to call a spade a spade. And if he was listening to News Talk ZB later that evening, he'd heard some of those people calling him a lot worse. He was from Dipton as well. His parents had the IGA or the four square there. Then he left and took the money but just went. Yeah, but but I'm so pleased that you're bringing this up because I'm just so disgusted at the hypocrisy of the national... Party. So, yeah. thank you. Yeah, absolute pleasure. That was just one bit of the opprobrium on News Talk ZB that night, hosted by Marcus Lush, who lives and broadcasts from the Deep South. 
He said Hamish Walker was not fit to be an MP anymore, and likewise Michelle Bogue when it came to punditry. And I don't know if Michelle Bogue's a commentator on this radio show either. I mean, I probably should say that that's something I'm not aware of. But um, if you turn up on radio as a commentator, if you drive across the city to go into the studio to hear your voice, you're either um, desperate to be heard or you've got clients. That's my take. And the next day on RNZ Nationals, the panel, host Wallace Chapman, told listeners this. Barry says, I'm a regular listener, I enjoy listening to the panel. And the different panellists, while I may not always agree, I do like listening to different opinions. But uh, I wonder if it is possible for you to provide me with any advance warning of when Michelle Boke is scheduled to be on air so I may turn my radio off. So, look, just to let you know, listeners, that Michelle Bogue will not be appearing on the panel anytime soon, that I can tell you this afternoon. Though he didn't say precisely why they decided that Michelle Bogue was not considered a fit and proper panellist anymore. By Wednesday morning, the Clutha Southland MP was almost universally described in the media as disgraced MP Hamish Walker, and the leaking was being analysed in detail, including efforts to keep a lid on it. In her account of how the leak played out, RNZ's Joe Moyer said that Hamish Walker lawyered up before coming clean. She said Hamish Walker was stung by criticism of racism after he singled out nationalities of people in that press statement that he reckoned were heading to his patch for quarantine. And Hamish Walker had claimed that was part of the reason he leaked the details of the people with active cases to three media organisations. And Joe Moyer explained what happened next to Kim Hill on Morning Report last Wednesday. At the time... A commitment was made to Hamish Walker that information he was going to pass on to RNZ would not be connected to him. It would be anonymous, that we would be able to go to Megan Woods and talk about this information and that we wouldn't connect him with it. Now, that commitment was made before RNZ saw what was sent. Obviously, we didn't anticipate being sent such a serious privacy breach. Um, And so then basically we've got this situation where he's now put out a press statement saying that the reason that he um, passed on that information to media was that he wanted to expose the government's shortcomings so that they would be rectified. He said the information received was not password protected, it was not stored on a secure system where authorised people needed to log on, and there was no redaction to protect patient details. Now that is very different to the conversation that RNZ had with him and how we came to have the information, which was basically him trying to explain the origin of these people that were going to potentially come down to his electorate. The information Hamish Walker released clearly did not support his actual claims, drawing this reaction from Kim Hill. So then he had to change his reason. (laughs) Good move. But having given an undertaking that they would keep things confidential, was it absolutely ethical for RNZ and others in the media who got the same info for the same or similar reasons to reveal all those details now? Hayden Donnell took a look at that in this week's Midweek Media Watch and a couple of other examples where the media have had to weigh that up. Even one of the men who exposed all the president's men back in the day has struggled with that one recently. That's on the Media Watch page of the RNZ website, the RNZ app, or you'll find it on our podcast feed if you missed it. Meanwhile, Joe Moyer's riveting account of the story so far on RNZ's site last Wednesday ended like this. State Services Minister Chris Hipkins probably summed it up best when he arrived at his media conference last night and started with, um, where to begin? And the minister went on to give the media fresh headlines to take the story on further when he answered this question. You know, the relevant systems are in place. Is duty politics back? Um, look, I think that uh, 
This is a very disappointing situation. Um, it does uh, have a ring of duty politics to it, um, and I think that you know that would be very sad for the for the forthcoming election campaign. Soon after that, the home pages of the Herald, Stuff, and RNZ all had lead headlines referencing dirty politics. And the next day, Kim Hill kicked off Morning Report like this. The new health minister says the leaking of COVID-19 patient details by opposition MP Hamish Walker smacks of dirty politics. On Friday, the claims that dirty politics were in play were amplified when National Health spokesperson Michael Woodhouse and Michelle Bogue both revealed that she had sent similarly sensitive information about COVID cases to him as well in what RNZ's checkpoint described as seemingly synchronised statements. Now, dirty politics was, of course, the buzz phrase of the 2014 election campaign after the publication of Nikki Hager's expose about what some National Party politicians, staffers, supporters and lobbyists were up to back then. And part of the story back then was how the media were using leaks from partisans operating outside political parties, such as whale oil blogger Cameron Slater, though the public didn't know at the time where those stories were coming from or why they didn't find that out until Nikki Hager's book lifted the lid on it all. And after that, several senior journalists said publicly they regretted their choices and wouldn't have dealt with those sources if they had their time again. Now, back then, RNZ's political editor was Brent Edwards, who's now political editor at the National Business Review. And in a column published on Thursday in a video interview for the NBR on Friday, he said journalists' obligation to protecting their sources should not be used in the service of political strategy. And this use of leaks is quite common. It goes down to the journalist thing of, you know, protecting a source. Uh, but when it comes to a politician, I think actually the media should be tougher and should be up front with them and say, well, no, we're interested. You're trying to give this information away. We want to actually report that, not the information. Uh, so I think all those media organisations, and certainly I followed RNZ's coverage through the weekend, and I thought it was very odd. I read immediately that there was some real difficulty around how they were covering it, given that they obviously knew the source. And in that sense, the public were denied the true story. If you think that the public's right to know is actually the primary responsibility of journalism, that was put into secondary place. And in that way, the media allowed uh, at least one politician to start to play politics with some information. Now, it's true that three major news organisations were not giving the public the full story as they knew it throughout last weekend because of those deals they'd done with MP Hamish Walker. And Brent Edwards also wondered whether news media would have blown the whistle on all that at all if Hamish Walker and Michelle Bogue hadn't eventually outed themselves. But on the other hand, the management of COVID isolation is a huge issue of public importance right now, and an opposition MP is a completely legitimate avenue to the media for a genuine whistleblower to use if they've got significant information to disclose. But for Brent Edwards, it was more than merely ironic that the media were pressing Todd Muller and Michael Woodhouse about what they knew and when, when some of them knew more than they were prepared to publish. And I, I think that it's much, much better for the media to stand outside that. And sometimes that means you say no to a leak. Uh, and hopefully in the build-up to the election, it would be good to see both politicians and the media say, look, let's be up front, speak openly, report openly, so the public, the voting public, know exactly who is saying what and who is providing what information. That's what public interest journalism is about, is providing them with all the relevant facts not um, suppressing material and actually, in a sense, I think for two or three days, media were 
certainly being dishonest and misleading with their coverage because they weren't providing the public with the full information. But Brent Edwards was a lone voice in the media saying that this week, at least out loud. The subtitle of Nikki Hager's book back in 2014 was How Attack Politics is Poisoning New Zealand's Political Environment. And back then, the disinfectant of sunlight proved pretty useful for the media as well as the politicians. But as we now know, that particular virus is proving pretty persistent. It's icky, it's squeamish, and no one wants to talk about it until two naked porn stars came knocking. Hiya, I'm Sue. This is Derek. We're here because your son just looked us up online, you know, to watch us. That was the arresting opening of RNZ's daily news podcast, The Detail, last Monday, all about pornography and our kids. There's increasing concern about the fact that many are seeing a lot more of it at an earlier age these days, whether they're looking for it or not, thanks to the internet. Hence that startling awareness-raising advert that you might have seen lately on TV made for the internet watchdog safety group NetSafe. It features the porn stars popping around in person to give the parents of one young boy a heads up about what he's been up to online, much to his mortification. So he watches you online? Yay! You know, on his laptop. iPad, PlayStation. Mm, his phone, your phone. Smart TV projector. Yeah, anyway, we usually perform for adults, but your son's just a kid. But as the details Sharon Brett Kelly went on to explain, new research shows that kid isn't alone. The classification office released a study in April. It's the third in a series over three years. Add to that a report out last week from the Broadcasting Standards Authority which says nearly 9 out of 10 children over the age of 10 said they had seen content that had upset them over the past year. And that finding from a survey of 1,100 Kiwi kids by New Zealand On Air and the Broadcasting Standards Authority is the one that made most headlines when it was released last week. 90% of New Zealand children have come across media content that distressed them over the past year and many didn't think to click away from it. But when it comes to the media our kids are seeking out, well, there's a story in there too, but that one's a bit distressing for the mainstream media. For many of our tamariki, it's farewell tally and hello TikTok. The video sharing app beating both Instagram and Snapchat for the 30% of Kiwi kids who are now regulars on social media. So TikTok, for example, had it wasn't around in 2014 when we last did the usage, uh, last did the research, um, and TikTok's a huge platform for kids now. TikTok, for the uninitiated, is a video sharing app created in China eight years ago, which is used to create short song and dance and comedy and talent videos. It only launched outside China in 2017, and three months after launching in the US in 2018, it became the most downloaded app in the States. Along with the explosive popularity, though, there was a dark side. Some kids developed signs of an addiction to it, there have been privacy and cyberbullying concerns, and even instances of propaganda and misinformation propagating on it, and censorship ensuring that certain political stuff doesn't. But the real bad news for the likes of TBNZ is not that TikTok is bigger than Snapchat for our tamariki, it's that it's just one of several global online platforms that's becoming more popular than old-fashioned TV with kids here today. And the two kings of content... Netflix and YouTube, both now having overtaken traditional linear TV. 
And this is also bad news for the government's broadcasting funding agency, New Zealand On Air, which spends $20 million of public money each year on locally made programmes and content for New Zealand kids. Back in 2016, it launched a review of that when the main TV channels like TV1, TV2 and TV3 began backing away from screening children's shows, even if the taxpayer was picking up the tab. The only free-to-air TV channel showing kids' shows in kids' time anymore is Māori Television. On Wednesday afternoons, for example, it has youth shows Grid and Swagger, followed by the long-running show in Te Reo. Two years ago, New Zealand On Air launched an online children's programme platform called Hey Hey, hosted by TVNZ On Demand, in the hope that young digital natives would watch local programmes there alongside the international ones. So, has that worked? Colmar Brunton found the five most popular networks kids could name were YouTube, Netflix, Disney+, the Cartoon Network and Nickelodeon, none of those local. And while three quarters of parents and caregivers agreed that it's important for their children to watch local programmes, less than half the children surveyed knew of Hey Hey and only 17% had used it. Another startling finding was that a third of parents and caregivers think that YouTube, which is mostly unregulated, is the best platform for their 6- to 14-year-olds, and 10% think Netflix is. So, as this generation gets older, will they have any interest in local media at all? Jeanette Howe is the chair of the New Zealand Children's Screen Trust, which has long advocated for a kids' TV channel. But first I asked Nicole Hoey, chief executive of Cinco Cine Film Productions, maker of the long-running show Pukana and many other local programmes for kids, who's also a former board member at New Zealand On Air. One thing I would like to say is that in terms of the research, it's already old once it's published. Do you know what I mean? In terms of the world we now work and live in, I mean, the last time this research was done was six years ago. And it's great research, but the research is too far apart. What is slightly problematic with it to say that, oh, look, we're really shocked by this research. Well, none of us are. But in terms of having something that can be put in front of a government, government or in front of people that is not anecdotal, it's fantastic. Yeah, as if to make as if to make that point. Uh, yes, TikTok, uh, not even a thing yeah, back in 2014 no, when the last no. re- research was being done. Well, but... and Netflix wasn't wasn't upon us in 2014. Netflix did not arrive in New Zealand until 2015. TikTok was just just recent. You know, over the last what is it, 14, 15 months. It's been um, that it's like, been that swift, hasn't it? But Jeanette, do yeah. you see this as a worry? I mean, that shift away from the, the free-to-air TV channels as we knew them, you know, the traditional ones, that seems to be speeding up. That's what the research shows. Two, three years ago, this was happening. You can only have to look at television ratings to find that. I think it has to be remembered, too, that children's local content has basically disappeared from free-to-air platforms. What's important is that parents and kids in the survey are still saying that they value local content, and I think really we have to kind of work out better how we deliver it to them. Yeah, well, Jeanette, you backed uh, Hey Hey when it was introduced as a platform that's uh, online uh, and ad-free for kids. Um, But this survey seems to show it hasn't cut through that well in the two years it's been up. Half of children say they've heard of it, age 6 to 14. Uh, Only 17% say they've used it. Perhaps it just can't cut through with those, you know, the heavy presence of the likes of YouTube, Netflix, and, you know, surge of popularity of something new on the scene like TikTok. 
you know, those international platforms um, and global shows have a lot of money behind them that they're easy to find um, and, and you stick with them because there's a lot of choice in that content once you're there. And I think Hey Hey really um, to thrive basically needs more funding. It needs to be more discoverable and, and there needs to be more choice of content once kids find it. I think the move to TVNZ on demand is possibly going to help. I think they've already seen that um, it's gone from 2% to, to 9% um, in terms of cut through and, and streaming has doubled. But still, uh, there's a long way to go. It's just a, you know, a, a very small seed in a very um, populated garden. Um, in terms of children's television being now on free to air, Māori Television runs and runs a very uh, comprehensive children's television viewing, viewing on on Māori Television and on the Fidel Channel. It hasn't disappeared from totally from the screens. Fidel Māori is still uh, uh, programs are still very very much at the forefront of free, free to air advertising with Māori Television service. In terms of Hey Hey, in the first year, the, the Hey Hey uptake wasn't too bad, to be really honest. But it wasn't, you know, like it's discoverability. But but the reality, the reality is, it's got to be aggressively marketed in the digital world. It's no point, you know, to flout this. It's actually aggressive marketing and targeted marketing is what's needed. And I agree, Nicole. Um, I see that Māori Television has a great band of children's programming, and you know. It's still supporting it and values it, and that's fantastic. Um, I just think it's, you know, disappeared from the other free-to-air channels. Yeah, after years of advocating for uh, a dedicated TV channel, suddenly during the lockdown, we had one because of the need to support online learning in schools and so on. Um, Jeanette, was that a case of, like, where there's a will, there's a way? And actually, that's something that could have been done a long time ago, and would it have made a difference now uh, in the sorts of findings that we've had in this research? Um, if, if there'd been one two, three, four, five years ago. Absolutely. And I think international research shows that uh, where there are local channels like CBBs, um, it's holding its own, uh, the linear channels against, you know, the Netflix, etc. which we... Are they holding their own? I don't... Sure. Well... I, I don't... You know, the reality it, is, I mean, we've actually got to recognise our, our kids and, and the generations, you know, our, our two generations back... A digital natives, they do not. If you've got kids in your inside your fano watching, they do not watch television. You see, you walk, you only need to walk out on the streets when you go walking early in the morning. Kids have got little their, their, the iPhones in front of them that they're pushing, and they're all they're about twelve, 14, maybe twelve, fourteen, fifteen months old. They know how to push the screens. It's touch. They can move it. They don't have to use a remote control, which is television. You have uh, Pukana on Facebook as well, don't you? So you, oh, you get an audience through there? Anywhere we can put it. I mean, yeah. Pukana, has, you know, we, compared to our linear views on MTS, it's, I mean, it, it's all part of the, of the same package. Our package is about differently to, to other, other shows. It's about getting Te Reo Māori out wherever anybody will watch Te Reo Māori. I totally agree, and that's why we advocated that Hey Hey was a digital platform, because we know kids have moved. However, it is about visibility and discoverability, and there need to be multiple endpoints. They need to be able to find more than one program that interests them when they're going online. And, and I mean, that's what keeps them there. You know, I think it is about priorities, and I think there needs to be recognition that, you know, it's still valued by parents uh, and by kids, and we know that... Um, um, what about that finding, though, Jeanette, that 
more parents trust YouTube um, than than some TV channels, you know, which is a largely unregulated kind of a platform, and more than half of kids interacting with it daily in the survey between six and fourteen. Is that a concern for you, that, uh, or, or should it be a concern for media companies more broadly? What's happened is that in that time frame, YouTube Kids has come on board, um, which has got safeguards in place. And I think parents have started to trust YouTube. It's now, you know, it's just so ubiquitous. And I think it's more about looking at when kids are on YouTube, you know, following up recommendations from friends, looking for, you know, their favourite YouTube star. Later on, they might be looking for different kinds of content. So it's not a one-stop shop there is still an opportunity for local content to be found and enjoyed by kids. So, Nicole, kids clearly drifting towards global digital platforms for a lot of their content and screen time. Are we going to grow up with a generation that really isn't that bothered about whether they have locally owned and regulated homegrown media outlets or not? Um, I think I think, in, in terms of locally owned uh, broadcast outlets, we, the adapting needs to be done there. You know, the conversation we're running at the moment is the audience isn't in control. We're actually the audience is now in control in this digital world. So we have to think very differently about how our local broadcasters, or they have to think differently about how they are going to now continue to garner their audiences. That's the type of thinking that needs to move. we need to move forward with. Well, that's the point I was trying to make before, Nicole, is that I think linear TV, especially where there's a digital divide, still has a place. And I think it's interesting that the education department, talking about silos, were the department that um, popped up the home learning channels during COVID-19. It would be interesting to see the figures in terms of the uptake. And a lot of the content from Hey Hey you know, found its way onto those channels and people knew about them. And I think it's that visibility and discoverability that we're missing at the moment because we're, we're looking at serving audiences now and creating audiences for the future. And that really can only be done with a comprehensive strategy and funding. That was Jeanette Howe, chair of the New Zealand Children's Screen Trust. And we also heard there from Nicole Hoey, the chief executive of Cinco City Film Productions, makers of the long-running show on Māori television, Pukana, and many other local programmes for kids. This week was another big one for the nation's biggest publisher of news, Stuff, now embarking on a new era under new ownership, that of Chief Executive Sinead Boucher, who bought the company for a dollar from Australian owners last month. On Monday, the spin-off reported a leaked staff email which revealed that the publisher had decided to pause its presence on Facebook because of the malign impact it's having on our public life and on the news industry. And that raised eyebrows in the media world, though those who heard Stuff's boss Sinead Boucher telling MediaWatch this shortly before she became the owner might not have been completely surprised. You know, we as a news entity and as a journalism um, company uh, stand in opposite to Facebook in a lot of ways. And I think because the type of work we produce, the code of ethics that we adhere to, you know, the fact that we're producing journalism that's fair, is accurate and balanced, is at odds to the fact that Facebook is permitted uh, massacres to be live streamed, uh, people's personal data to be used and misused to, you know, um, manipulate elections or for fake news to be spread. 
It was Stuff's chief executive and its new owner, Sinead Boucher, talking to MediaWatch during the lockdown back in April. And you can read all about the company's bold call on Facebook on the MediaWatch page of the RNZ website. Just look for the heading, Stuff's Fighting Talk on Facebook. And in this week's Midweek MediaWatch, you can hear Hayden Donnell talking about that with Karen Hay on The Lately Show. Head to the website or wherever you get your podcasts if you missed that. To mark 20 years since the company's last onshore owners first launched online news on the stuff.co.nz website, Stuff has launched a new version of the site with new sections, a new layout, and the cherry message, Kia ora Aotearoa, at the top. And apart from being tidier and easier on the eye, something else that sets it apart from the site in years gone by, there's hardly anything on it you could call clickbait. For years, Stuff and its main rival for eyeballs, nzherald.co.nz, were castigated by critics for publishing too much stuff that wasn't really newsworthy, but had headlines on titillating topics designed to get you to click. Way back in 2008, MediaWatch talked about that with Stuff senior editor Mark Stevens. Within you know an hour or so of posting a story, we know if it's working, um, and when I say we know it's working, we know if the readers like it. Newspaper editors around the country would love to be able to have that sort of instant reaction from their readers. How much of an influence is that having on you? Uh, Are you tailoring it to what the readers like? When I say tailoring, I I make no apologies for being populist. But yeah, I'm all for giving the readers what they want. So yeah, that would definitely have an influence on the nature of stories that we would put in the top four. You've got a section called Editor's Picks Mm -hmm. and you've got the most viewed. Mm -hmm. And about two weeks ago, I, I looked at it and... Editor's picks, top pick was best breasts in Hollywood mm-hmm. with picks and brackets. Mm-hmm. I assumed that that was the most read rather than what an editor would be pointing the readers no, to. No, no, not at all. One of our web editors decided that was a story that our readers should be pointed to. Our most viewed, we will react to it. If a story is working, we'll know the readers like it and we'll continue to find fresh angles around it. If a story's not working, we'll try something new. Well, 12 years on, Mark Stevens is now Stuff's editorial director, having taken the job up after the company's current owner and boss, Sinead Boucher. So this week I asked him, where has all the clickbait gone and why? Um, have we made a conscious move away from clickbait? Um, I'm going to give you two answers, and that's because I think in, in the first instance, I think Stuff being a destination for clickbait was always more of a perception than a reality. Of course, we had entertainment news, we still do people like seeing some entertainment news. But what I do think we've consciously and very deliberately um, done is focus more in the last couple of years on building a newsroom of those great writers that I mentioned, the country's best journalists, and they are focusing on unique, trustworthy content. So is is that reader-led? Um, they have responded to it and and we'll continue down that path. Well, I'll put it another way, though. I think the perception was that the two of you and the Herald and stuff, the the audience was always bigger for you and that you wanted to maintain that. So the perception was for years you two were trying to get readers' attention from each other and you do whatever you had to do to do it. Is there now no need for that, that look, kind of war for clicks and look, being, we're, being we're, the We're first. a commercial business. Attracting an audience is, is obviously um, something that we um, we need to continue to do. But I think you're absolutely right. Um, you know, newsrooms have never and, and still don't have any shortage of things like analytics. We know what 
what people are looking at and what they're not. Um, do we still use them? Of course we do. Um, are we far more sophisticated in the way we use those? Um, yes, we are. We look, we're, we're more interested in where our audience is coming from, how long they're spending on the site, on, on individual stories. Um, and again, you know, I, me- I mentioned as trust increasingly becomes a key metric for us over size, the number of clicks. Um, I think that's translated into what you, for example, are seeing on the site. Mm. I mean, you talked about this way back in 2008, because even then there was this this perception that there's a lot of tabloid type stuff, uh, even that stuff was was pointing readers to it um, in order to maximise the clicks. Um, but you said at that time, look, you know, I wouldn't make any apologies for being populist, for attracting an audience. That's what we need to do. Yeah. Certainly digging around in the archives there, aren't you? Yeah. 10, 11, 12 years old. Mm. We did have a breadth of content and we still do. There is still entertainment news for people who want to engage and consume entertainment news, but our focus is on that unique, trustworthy, independent, credible journalism. The new site better reflects that, which is great, and, and you've made that point. Um, and, and I still think that we are a site for all New Zealanders. Um, you know, we a real focus for us, for example, is on, you know, the diversity of of our newsrooms, of our reporting, how we reflect what is just a massive New Zealand audience. It's it's great that the I suppose you'd say that unique journalism is shining through now. But is it is it also um that actually the economic rewards were never that great for the kind of journalism that would maximise clicks. Chasing clicks, getting traffic has turned out not to be hugely lucrative and that's partly what might have driven your decision as well as more uh, high-minded I, I, mission of trying to build I trust. would say the economics of it are certainly a factor but look, I would say um, you know, the economics for anyone in that industry aren't awesome right now but I personally believe that carving out that space that we are in New Zealand at the moment um, for the type of journalism we're doing must put us in a better, more sustainable position as we try and navigate those. And actually, as you, we speak, you are currently recruiting, I think, in, in five really serious senior journalism positions, the mm-hmm. data journalism position, the Wellington Region or Dominion Post editor, a business editor, all these up for grabs. So as your company into this new phase, is that a good sign? I think it is um, absolutely a good sign, and they are key roles for us. We are continuing to attract uh, the best of the best in New Zealand. We've just recently taken, you know, three-time Reporter of the Year nominee Kirsty Johnson um, to add to our mix. Um, Mike White um, from the changes there at Bauer, obviously. Now, the the Facebook issue has been a, a big one this week. Patrick Crudson uh, has spoken about that on RNZ, the reasons for this move, and he's described it in terms of part of that mission to build uh, trust with readers. But mm-hmm. there are... I mean, the thick end of one million followers in you, uh, of the Facebook page. How important is that audience to them? Presumably, as someone, you know, the senior editor at the site, you don't want to lose that kind of reach. Are you really happy with this decision? Not just um, am I not concerned as an editor. I was obviously a key um, part of that de- decision. But this is an experiment. It allows us to help better understand our own unique direct audience But to your point about that big audience, of course it is important for us that people can access our trustworthy journalism. And I accept that the point you made that a lot of those uh, or a chunk of people are accessing that through Facebook. So we'll continue to monitor it. But I am pretty confident in 
uh, our decision to go down this path at this stage on the basis that we enjoy across our newspapers and our website a massive reach in New Zealand, you know, one that is as big as, if not bigger, than those global platforms. That, that interview you did way back in the dusty old past of 2008, you talked about the analytics Mm-hmm. which you mentioned earlier, and you described it as a great tool um, because, you know, imagine that newspaper editors would have loved this in the past, to be able to see almost instantly what people have engaged with and what mm-hmm. they haven't. But, of course, it's a double-edged sword because, you know, that can guide you into providing maybe too much of one thing just because the people like it. Um, but these days, is it different? So if you hire Kirsty Johnston, Mike White, are you at stuff then all over the analytics for every story they publish, you know, worrying about just how many people it attracts? And if... Kirsty publishes something that's pretty gritty but significant and not that many people read it, you're okay with it? Yeah. Look, I think one thing that we've potentially forgotten about that 2008 interview is that I also said that newsworthiness, um, journalistic um, judgment will trump those analytics. It did then and it will continue to do so now. Right down to individual journalists who are writing those stories, do they want to know how that's performing? Should they know how that's performing? Of course they should. It is not just how many people have clicked on it, who's clicking on it. You know, are these are these our supporters? Are they people who have come from a social platform? How long are they spending on that side? You know, there is a much deeper, more sophisticated level of analysing the performance of our content, but um, just the magnitude and the clicks is certainly not the primary draw card. Do you think it's been damaging for stuff down the years? And now that you're on a mission to build trust, that for whatever reason people think, ah, stuff is just publishing that to chase mm-hmm. clicks, either for their own reasons or because they're in a were in a race with with the Herald to be bigger and better. Yeah, look, I'd reiterate my point that I think this is more perception than reality. But perception can be equally as damaging to to a brand. I accept that. But what I would say is we've made some conscious and deliberate decisions over the last couple of years, and those sort of comment comments and that sort of narrative from that um, you know vocal minority, the squeaky wheel, is certainly not what it used to be. Um, I would say that we get far more positive feedback um, about the the type of journalism that we do than any kind of negative feedback. Cool. We'll see where it goes. Thanks a lot, Mike. Thanks, Thanks for coming. Thanks, Colin. Thank you. The editorial director at Stuff, Mark Stevens. Well, that's all we have for you in Media Watch this weekend, but we'll be back with plenty more on the media at about 10.30 next Wednesday night when we have Midweek Media Watch on The Lately Show with Karen Hay and then back for more Media Watch at the same time next weekend here on RNZ National.